0: the argument being that diseased black indigenous people were unhealthy Mm -hmm. and you had to create that separation
1: from the history watch project this is the history watch podcast series bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world with some help from people who know what they're talking about
2: i am audra dipty and on today's episode of the history watch podcast series we welcome dr vanessa watson dr watson holds the post of Professor of City Planning at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Her research over the last 30 years has focused on urban planning in the Global South, with a particular focus on Africa. I met Dr. Watson while we were both on a Rockefeller writing residency in Bellagio, Italy. We did this interview while we were at the Bellagio Center and so this podcast would not have been possible without support from the rockefeller foundation in addition to publishing extensively on the subject of urban planning Dr. Watson has served as a lead consultant for the UN Habitat's 2009 Global Report on Planning Sustainable Cities, as well as served on their Global Reports Advisory Board. She's also a founding member of the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. Finally, I'll remind listeners that the History Watch podcast series is now available on both iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe if you want updates on our newly released podcasts. Join me in conversation with Dr. Vanessa Watson in this episode of the History Watch podcast series Decolonizing the African City, Legacies and Challenges.
1: But if we're thinking about Africa and cities, and what what are some of the ways in which, during the period of colonialism, um, what are some of the factors that they used to make decisions about how they planned cities? Or did they even plan cities? Is planning, being, is planning too kind of a word?
0: So it's maybe worth remembering that mm-hmm. Africa was the last continent to be colonized. It was okay. Latin America, then it was Asia and India, and then, and then it was Africa. So they were the last to be colonized and, and the last to get independence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so Africa was colonized at a, at a time, and we're talking, I suppose, I think it was the 1800s, early 1900s, when, mm-hmm. when planning became a very important tool of government in the colonizing countries. So you're saying they had centuries of experience? They, uh, In other parts of the world. Well, not, not century. Uh, planning planning became important for uh, for Europe and the UK, more or less at the time of the Industrial Revolution, because that's when UK and European towns were growing really rapidly because of industrialization. Of course. And they had to start to worry about how to manage the growth of their towns. So if you look at, at, at the previous two 300 years, when Latin America was colonized or India was colonized, planning... Was much less of a, of a of a issue, but by the sort of mid 1800s, um, Britain was starting to think very seriously about how cities should be planned, laid out, uh, okay. controlled, managed, and and so on. So they had ideas so about a, what an ideas they had. They like. had ideas. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if we're looking across the African continent, and, and of course uh, the slave trade, West Africa, and so on goes back much further. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, you've got Britain colonizing much of, of South and East Africa.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then with the, the rest of it, it's, 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 and, and some of West Africa. Otherwise, it's the, it's the Germans, it's the French, it's the Dutch, it's the Portuguese. So, so there were many different...
1: Uh, and were there different systems?
0: They were slightly different systems, um, particularly around, around land ownership and mm-hmm. who owned land. But they, in, in, if we go back to Europe, they were all sharing ideas about planning and cities. So there was, even though Africa was colonized by very different countries, there was almost a sort of common sense of, of planning that was emerging at the time. Okay. And it was, uh, it, it became almost a, I mean, a, a, a clear pattern that as... The colonists moved in to a newly colonized territory. One first way of stamping their administrative authority was to to lay out towns. And it, it partly had to do with the fact that administrators were being located in those towns. So the administrative centre, which was very often on the coast because it was about the extraction of resources from the interior, which would then be taken to a port and back to the colonising countries. So towns, I mean, the the notion of how those new administrative centres should be laid out, there's, there's a degree of commonality across the continent.
1: When I look at African cities during the slave trade, which is mm. the period I would know about, yeah. they were always along r- riverways and that kind of thing. So you're it's, probably looking at pre, a lot of them were pre- that's
0: pre-colonial. Colonial. So yeah. during yeah. the colonial period, they didn't concern themselves with that. So, so let's go, So probably um, you find West Africa and North Africa had a had a strong tradition of urban settlements. Mm-hmm. That, that predated the colonists. Right. So you could, and, and certainly North Africa goes back a long, 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 thousands. And those those indigenous settlements, if you can call them that, and some of them are quite big cities, mm-hmm. were tied into trade routes. So those, as colonizing countries moved in, those were largely disregarded. There was a sort of new pattern of settlement was imposed on the newly colonized countries. And it, it had to do with ports very often. So you find all these countries had the, the capital is nearly always at a port or at the, the mouth of the river. Trade. Ex- exporting resources, whether it's using minerals or agriculture or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was a common factor. There was also a, a common factor around, which later became the whole issue of segregation, about racial separation. So it was it, it was always a case of sort of a certain part of the city and the most favorable part set aside for whites, who were the colonists. And then there would always be a a buffer strip of some kind, a, a big space, called a cordon sanitaire. Now, you will understand that as a, as a French term. So a health corridor between the white settlers and and an indigenous black people who may so be settling in the city. Where and after? Pick, pick, everywhere. Common across certainly South Africa, South, it's Southern sure. Africa, Eastern Africa, even up into West Africa. So so the notion of a cordon sanitaire, the, the argument being that diseased black indigenous people were unhealthy mm-hmm. and you had to create that separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was a whole thing about mosquitoes and how far they could travel as well. So those early settlements were laid out on the basis of of firstly administration and control, but also separation from black populations. There was also a whole lot of planning that came through at a kind of much wider scale in relation to the country as a whole. And that was about keeping the black population in labor reserves. So keeping black people as far as possible out of the cities unless their labor was required for particular kinds of activities. So in South Africa, the Bantustan, or the homeland was the example of that but that mm. that principle you can find again in in just like, yeah yeah so so segregation not only at a at a kind of national level that's sort of national regional planning but also with, within cities itself okay So so you have a situation where, you know, where, where cities were developing and, and gradually indigenous black people were moving into cities, you know, faster and faster. They were being penned up into labor reserves that simply couldn't support those populations anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you find a sort of increasing attempts, certainly by uh, by planners in those cities, and they would import planners out from Britain and France to, to control, to repress. So there's a, there's a strong element of violence in in planning. It, it wasn't a. It wasn't a nice, neutral, mm-hmm. friendly uh, laying out. I mean, there was there was very there was very different sort of violence involved. Violence and repression and exclusion in in all sorts of ways. So, so not only was there an attempt to to move black populations to to the edge of towns and, and away, but also to control what they did there and what they built. So, an attempt not to allow them to build. Uh, houses of any substance because they were seen as temporary sojourners in the city um, to control in all sorts of ways any kind of of businesses they ran uh, what they did on their land and and so forth so and of course there was resistance I mean it was not simply a one-way top-down there were ongoing attempts to to resist and to fight back uh, but the colonists were, were obviously stronger And certainly in all the British countries, by the 1930s, 1940s, the, the British had introduced into all the territories they controlled national planning law. And it was, it was, it was copying almost identically uh, the British planning laws at the time. So the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act was imposed in just about every colonized country, for example. It was used in a way to, to divide races, to divide classes as well, but there was a straight race-class coincidence that we're talking about. Whereas in, in, the, in the UK or Europe, planning was seen as a kind of a positive, this is a lovely, bright future kind of mm-hmm. activity. In, in the colonies, it was seen as control.
1: Okay.
0: Um, I mean, that was the form of planning that was in place all the way until independence for most, for most countries um with uh, with with no shift you know on on the part of the colonizing Mm -hmm. countries and and again and again it was uh, and because there was resistance um there was also repression and and very often it was violent resistance and violent repression Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um that that one sees so so that was very clear in south africa which was the epitome of of this kind of pattern
1: Okay so if i understand if i were to if i understand you correctly we're talking about planning it was the cities were organized to control labor mm. to segregate yeah. to repress yes okay and the locations were chosen around port cities mm. And these cities were really necessary <clears throat> because of an interest in export and trade. Yes, yes. Okay. And
0: administration of the country. And administration, mm. of course. Mm. Administration mm. of the co- So South Africa is, a, I mean, a good example of all of these things. I mean, the first port was Cape Town and then Durban and then Port Elizabeth. The main towns were, in the first instance, on the coast.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then when diamonds were discovered, diamonds and gold were discovered in the interior, uh, at Johannesburg was, was started as a new settlement there. But the whole time, uh, everything sort of extracted from the interior was, was sent down to the coast. But all South, South Africa's towns, under the British, this was before the apartheid government, under the British was, uh, were planned and built according to those principles of, of, of segregation, separation, uh, and, and control of, of how the black population lived. Lived then they would? Yeah. Okay. In the case of South Africa, I mean, that that principle was taken over directly by the apartheid government. And then planning was used as a very direct tool of of apartheid, both within the cities, but within the country as a whole and the establishment of what they call the, the labor reserves. So, so 13% of all South Africa's territory was allocated to the African population, which was, of course, uh, you know, I mean, the, the numbers were, you know, like far, far, far. High as, yeah. And the rest of, of, of the land of the country was allocated to white people the uh, the white population were dominating not only the cities but also the farmlands commercial agriculture and african people were basically herded into uh, very often removed from agricultural land and moved into these defined Mm. rural areas where the densities were, were simply far too high to do any kind of sensible agriculture mm. uh, or anything else and, and I mean the, the the starvation and everything else well, I'm also it. thinking about things like sanitation mm. and whatnot did they have good sanitation in these areas did they have a good way to deal with if we look at the cities the higher level of infrastructure was essentially in the white areas there was uh, there was a degree of sanitation in in the black areas but simply because it was very clear that if you had a health epidemic in the black areas that would spread pretty quickly to the white areas and the the spanish flu of 1918 had a major impact around exactly that
1: okay
0: because i mean a lot of people died of the spanish flu in 1918 so in in a lot of these colonized cities there was there was a realization that disease travels and and you actually (laughs) have to look at the sanitation in both the the white and the black Black side of town but but uh, to differing degrees I suppose the interesting part about this is that in, not in South Africa, but in the other colonized territories, come independence, which was 1950s, 1960s, mm-hmm. you had a new black elite takeover. And in almost all countries, the, the black elite saw the value of this planning legislation and planning approach to basically enrich and improve their own lives, lifestyle. And they, in just about every country, that, that old style planning remained in place. At, at the national level, but it was simply a replacement of white colonists by, by black elites. Not entirely. I mean, some colonists stayed, as we know. Mm-hmm. But there was there was a very significant. The class divide that emerged and the, the ruling class became the black elite but and, and also any white colonies that remained. So that, that pattern of, of segregation that had been entirely racial beforehand now became both class and race based. Mm-hmm. But but not too dissimilar, very similar patterns of, of urban development. But
1: are there any examples where people were able, where any independent country where we at least see effort, successful or not, to try and do with the legacy of colonial city planning. If I... Mm. I couldn't even imagine how you would
0: yeah. do yeah. what had been done for so long. yeah. yeah. It's... Uh- <laughs> I can't, I can't point you to one, yeah. actually. I mean, all you, all you see is is a, as the system that was put in place broke down increasingly as people migrated in from the rural to the urban areas, black people, and, and informal settlements started to spring up. And there was an increasing realization on the part of governments that there was no way they could control those informal settlements or turn them into a kind of modern mm-hmm. suburb, even though there were plenty of, of, of attempts to do that. So, I mean, what you see is a, is a, is a kind of bottom-up transformation of cities, <clears throat> where informal uh, settlements have sort of taken over much of what was the kind of modern colonial city. Mm-hmm. So, it's transformation from below, right? Um, and, and usually pushback from from above, from government. There've been stories about Zimbabwe. That's, uh, oh, that's Well really, exactly going into my mind, yeah, time yeah. Time. yeah. Um, and and. And very often, black elites have used planning legislation for, for political end. Very often it's been, uh, the ruling party has been rural-based and the opposition has been urban-based. And time and a time, Mugabe was oh, a... Really? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that was a, a... pretty common pattern. Yeah. A pattern. Yeah. Mugabe was, his, his voter base was in the rural areas, opposition mm. was urban. And his big move to uh, destroy informal settlements and informal traders in, in Harare was, was direct... You wow. know, I mean, there were about a million people were, were moved under that, but it was a direct political move on his part. Well, not so surprising that he did it. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. totally. But there have been plenty of others as well. But yeah. They're not quite at that scale, but... Uh, I mean, in most African countries, I mean, even Nereri, Tanzania, yeah. and Nereri had some very good principles of socialism and equity and all the rest of it, but the planning law didn't change until quite recently, and our es Salaam and the big cities didn't change a lot until really informal settlements have taken over,
1: so if we were to talk about the legacies and mm. the actual legacies and what this means in terms of people's everyday realities mm. for colonialism colonial urban planet. We would be talking about absence of access to sort of
0: basic resources. Is that one of the things? And I can talk through South African cities as as a quick, sort of extreme Is that, example, but yeah. a, a, the same applied in many other parts. I mean you would you would you would find a better provided part of the city, which had better services, better infrastructure, had all the, the clinics and hospitals and schools and all the rest of it, which would largely be occupied by wealthier white people and at a distance away. So this, it's the spatial separation becomes important but with less in the way of infrastructure or services or anything or jobs mm-hmm. uh, would be black colored indian people in the case of south africa so so you find poorer and black people trapped if you like into you mm-hmm. my call cool ghettos because certainly under apartheid they couldn't buy land outside of those areas or live outside of those areas where they had to travel very long distances every day to get a job Mm-hmm. or to get access to, to any kind of public services. So they were caught in a, in a spiral of poverty, I suppose you could say, that, that trapped them. I mean, it's, uh, in, in South Africa, they've been shipped since in the last 20 years since independence. Cape Town much less so, funnily enough. And Cape Town is still a very segregated, racially segregated city. There's been very little change from the old apartheid model, which again, it was sort of set in place under the British. So, but the I mean, cheap,
1: it's not obviously legally,
0: mm-hmm. it's not an issue. It's just it's not mobility. The, it's not the market. The market now sort of, of segregates along the same lines as mm-hmm. racial divisions had before, because it's, it now follows income divide. Right. And the income divide is racial. Is racial. Yeah. Johannesburg, less so. There's a growing middle class. Durban, less so. But Cape Town has remained incredibly... Diverse. Yeah, okay. I mean, most of the countries that were colonized, it's really only in the last five, ten years that they have changed their planning laws. They very often change their national planning laws away from the old British law, but then done almost nothing to implement it. So
1: where are they getting their inspiration for change planning laws? do they just thinking of
0: it or is it ad hoc are they taking inspiration from some other part of the world it's it's international consultants it's the world bank oh there we go it's it's the imf it's uh, it's the big agencies okay those are the ones that are coming in to rewrite the planning law oh that's scary and that really doesn't yeah Yeah. it's, it's not improving much at all What one is, and there's certainly some attempts in some South African cities to try and, and integrate, it's happening very, very slowly. It really is. But the the new forces which are shaping African cities, again, I'm talking pretty widely, mm-hmm. uh, which again is simply entrenching the old patterns, is the movement in of, of the international property developers. So this is a post-2008 phenomenon that we see. And, and basically, it was after the 2008 economic collapse when uh, particularly the, the private property development industry was on the lookout for new frontiers, as they called it, because the property industry had collapsed in United States and in, in Europe. So so Africa was kind of new, uncharted territory. I didn't realize that they just re- redirected their attention. Yeah. And that was the place that became the place to to invest in property. Oh. Um, so you, you find this huge shift after 2008. Uh, where foreign investors would come in and basically land grab. And it was either... So they would buy from the government? What would they do? Or buy from... Buy from whatever... Government or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Or if it was on the edge of the city, it may be from existing small farmers. Take up very large parcels of of land land. and then start to invest in basically elite-gated suburbs.
1: But I'm surprised there's a market for... Okay, if we're talking about places that I imagine uh, have a large proportion of the population... in poverty,
0: poverty. Yeah. yeah is this middle class who's, who's buying these but it's, it's for the it's for the middle class i mean this is uh, i mean this is a big issue usually the the plans that are on the websites for these mm-hmm. new land grab sites show extensive thousands of of very luxurious houses mm-hmm. and and the question is always who is going to buy these because you know i mean the the diaspora the diaspora is one important investor and so this may be people and there's a big diaspora from Africa there may be people actually earning a lot of money in other parts of the world and that buy come back and these buy. Sort of yeah but it's not only housing it's also office blocks and it's it's retail and, it's, and and many of these things are certainly on the websites they look like Dubai or Shanghai or mm-hmm. um, I mean the capital of Rwanda which is Kigali and Rwanda has a very autocratic government and just about five years ago they presented this plan of how they imagined their capital city, Kigali, to look. Now, Kigali, five or six years ago, had something like 80% of the population was in, informal and in informal settlements. The image of a new city, which, K, which Rwanda put on its website, was literally Dubai. Wow. Glass box, tile buildings, the whole lot. And being Rwanda, the government has been through a process, and you see bits in the news all the time about moving out informal settlements. They're People are pushed out to rural villages or out of the city entirely, and these new glass box buildings. Are they given alternative accommodation, or are they just said on little, their own? Very little alternative yeah. accommodation. There's new rural villages being mm-hmm. set up, and some of it may be to that. I mean, I often wonder where they are sending people. So there's, I mean, there's a government that really is hell bent on what they call modernising. So, so you find this kind of of rhetoric from from all the governments. They want to be world class. They want to they want to catch up. They use that term very often with Modernize. the West. Modernise. Modern. Mm-hmm. and in their minds, politicians' minds, modernizing is looking like Dubai or Shanghai. And they will do what they can to to transform their slum risen battling cities mm-hmm. into something that is glitzy and glassy and of market.
1: But this literally means displacement. It means people. huge
0: displacement. Yeah, huge
1: displacement. What they, they deem as unsafe. Yeah. Far away, nobody
0: mm. can see it. Mm. So, Absolutely. So it's a, it's a kind of mental colonization, we mm-hmm. can say. I mean, the you know, the independence may have happened, but, but the colonization of the mind mm-hmm. continues. And for the politicians, it's very much, we still have to look like America or Europe or yeah. or maybe Singapore. So I Shanghai. actually always talk about, in my class, I always talk mm-hmm.
1: about the way in which development discourse, because this comes mm-hmm. out of colonial mm-hmm. discourse, yep. the way it's just been bought into wholesale, Sale, you yeah. know, and without any, mm. among politicians, I yeah. course, there they're a group of people, post-development mm. scholars mm. and whatnot, who are critiquing it, but their idea of what progress is supposed to look like, or what development is mm. supposed to look like, Absolutely. is just Absolutely. Uh, we need to do X, Y and Z so that mm. we resemble some arbitrary developed yeah. country, yeah. city, yeah. what yeah. have you. And it's usually
0: America, or, mm-hmm. or London, or, or, or Paris.
1: But without thinking that given the foundations that they're mm on they have to Mm. think anew they have to think very differently because that trajectory that is not the same
0: So I mean, what might shift things? I mean, you, you've heard about the Sustainable Development Goals,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and one of those is Goal 11. That's a new goal for cities everywhere in the world, and uh, that's UN. But actually, the the discourse in that. Goal statement is remarkably progressive. So it does talk about inclusive, equitable cities, really? um, about a, a accepting informality, about all that kind of thing. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see, because a lot of governments are now signing up, you know, to the, we support the SDGs. <laughs> Um, so we, it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen, whether it's just going to be, be on executed, paper yeah. or it's actually going to come down to... But, uh, I mean, there is now a, a sort of... There is now a move to say this is... You mm-hmm. know, we have to think about cities differently. Yeah, and if you take, I mean, if you look at African cities, which are currently growing really fast, and the estimate is they will double in size in the next twenty years. Wow! So that's a really rapid growth rate. Mm-hmm. Given uh, given the problems that most of them have at the moment, and you imagine them twice the size, I mean, if nothing is done, it will be complete disaster. Right. And it's it's social, economic, environmental. I mean, it's it's across the board that there will be major collapse. Wow. So we we might we might be getting to a point where the crisis is, is so big that there will have to be some kind of, of shift in in you know how cities are are managed i mean if you think of, of lagos which is now it's the biggest city in africa mm-hmm. i mean it's getting on to 20 million people Can you imagine? several hundred kilometers yeah. you know with, with very little in the way of of interest, infrastructure mm-hmm.
1: In short, then the way forward seems to be just to reimagine it means to in many ways just abandon some of the thinking that they have absolutely. And then something you had said in our earlier conversation, perhaps in your presentation, uh, a recognition
0: or appreciation for the informal sector, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. so that things are, hmm. are more organic. What's unusual about a lot of African cities is there's no industrialization with urbanization, that's it's a pattern that's happened almost everywhere else in the world as people move into well people move into cities because of industrialization and as there's industrialization more people move into cities so that usually correlates Right, um, and you look at Latin American cities; it's the case. You look at a lot of the Asian cities; it's the case. Not the case in Africa. So we have uh, we have city growth without economic growth. Ah. So so I mean the number of people that that work informally in African cities is a generalisation, but it's about seventy percent mm-hmm. don't have a formal job. Right. <clears throat> so that could be vendors. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't have a formal job, you probably don't get a formal house. So you're in an informal settlement. So that's that's the norm. It's not the exception. It's the norm now most people in, in African countries. And I mean, the only way you can you can think about the future of African cities is if you've got to think of a way of working with informal energies and innovations, rather than imagining that you can simply bulldoze them and throw them out of the city. I mean, it's just never going to work. So a new direction has to work from the bottom up. It's got to work with informality, not against it. It's got to accept informal traders as, as the economy. It's got to think about different sorts of services and infrastructure that is based on renewables. It's not fossil fuel power renewable energy yeah, yeah. the whole different way of thinking about how cities could be in the future so some people say well maybe african cities have got to lead the way because they will innovate in that sense will have to innovate sooner mm-hmm. than others
2: that brings us to the end of this episode of the history watch podcast series decolonizing the african city legacies and challenges in which i was in conversation with dr vanessa watson of the university of cape town for a link to dr watson's work please see the podcast notes
1: the history watch podcast series is coordinated by dr audra dipty to learn more about the history watch project visit us at historywatchproject.com thanks for tuning
2: in goodbye